Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're cruising right along, aren't we? You guys proud of me? We could do it verse by verse, you know. It is really hard not to do that. I want you to know that. It's very hard not to do this verse by verse. We're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 3 of Hebrews. I've entitled this, Greater Than the Greatest. Let's read those first six verses. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Now, We've already seen that in the first two chapters that Jesus, as God's ultimate revelation, is greater than the what? He's greater than the prophets, remember? He's first of all greater than the prophets. Weren't the prophets highly esteemed in all of Israel? As uh, those who brought God's revealed word to the nation of Israel, they were esteemed as... uh, bringing God's word. So we saw, first of all, that Jesus was higher than the prophets. He's better than the prophets. Secondly, he is better than the angels. That's right. Because angels were esteemed even higher than the prophets because they were viewed as being the primary uh, um, emissary from God to bring God's word or God's law and covenant uh, to his people, to Moses. So he's higher than the prophets, he's higher than the angels. Now we're going to see how he is higher than, he's greater than Moses. Moses was the one through whom the first or the old covenant came to Israel. Now if we're going to appreciate, if we're going to understand how and why and to what extent Jesus is greater than Moses. Now remember, you've got to put on your Jewish mindset here. We're not, just, we're not just in here, church, we're, we, we know, yes, Jesus is greater than Moses, of course. You know, what are you telling us? If we're understanding the context of this letter, and we're, and we're thinking in terms of, of uh, how we're going to apply this, we have to understand, first of all, the context in which it was originally set, and that was uh, to uh, professing Jews. So if we're going to appreciate to what extent Jesus is better than Moses, then we need to understand something of Uh, the importance that Moses held to the Jews. Moses was extremely, extremely important. In fact, he was so esteemed, esteemed so highly by the Jews that there was no one greater than Moses amongst the Jews. There was no Jew greater than Moses. 
He was the greatest of all the Jews. Now, if you're a Jew, if you're an Israelite, Moses is the guy. He is the greatest of all the Jews. Now, this is their mindset. This is where these people were coming from. Had God not miraculously protected Moses in his birth? Surely. I mean, that kind of protection, uh, God sparing him when all the, all the sons, all the firstborn sons of Israel were being slaughtered and young Moses is protected, it's miraculous. Even in his death, that was personally provided. His burial was personally provided for by none other than God. Can you see how the Israelites would esteem Moses? Between his birth and his death, between those two points of his life, his life was full of miracles, wasn't it? Full of miracles. Uh, he, is, he is a man who, who God calls faithful, a man that God could speak face to face with. Intimately, God would speak through the prophets, but he'd speak through the prophets via visions and dreams and, and prophecies. The word of the Lord would come to a prophet. But to Moses, God himself says, here is a man I can speak face to face with. No other person in the whole history of Israel is spoken of that way except Moses. So you can understand how the Jews would esteem him uh, the greatest uh, and, and as highly as they did. Uh, he was the one, obviously, who led Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And in so doing, he, he was responsible for, or I should say, he was the vessel through which God worked incredible miracles. So Moses, indeed, was a, was a great personage in the history of Israel. The whole Old Testament, the, 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 the Pentateuch, the first five books, I should say, of the Old Testament, are, are uh, recorded, we think, by Moses. The law that was given by God, which contained all the rituals for Israel, these were esteemed very highly by the Jews. And because they were given to Moses, the law and Moses became synonymous. So much so that it wasn't so much the law of God as it was known in Israel, it was the law of Moses. And so you, with, with this brief background, you can begin to grasp something of the significance and the importance of this man Moses uh, to the Israelites. Some Jews even believed that Moses, because God spoke to him face to face, that Moses was greater than the angels. That would make him the greatest of all of God's revelatory agencies, if you will. So Moses is way up there, isn't he? in terms of the estimation of the Jews. But we see in our passage here in Hebrews that in spite of the greatness of Moses, now the writer to the Hebrews understands his Jewish mentality. He understands the attitude that these Hebrew believers have towards Moses. Remember, his purpose is to undergird their confidence, not in the prophets so much, not in angels, not in Moses, but in who? Jesus. And that's the same thing for all of us, is that our, we have our ultimate confidence in Jesus, and it be a real, palpable confidence. It's not just something that, well, we believe, but... Because when pressure comes, when testing comes, if we are not standing on the rock, we're going to get blown away. 
And that's exactly what was happening to these Hebrews. So the very same things that were going on in their lives go on in our lives as believers. And we must have an absolute confidence in Jesus. And this is exactly what he's telling them. And he's giving them examples over and over and over. Though Moses was indeed great, Jesus is far greater. He is far greater. Now, he's far greater for three reasons, or in three different ways, and we'll see these in this passage. First of all, he's greater in his office. We use that term office, or his station, his his position, if you will. And that is that he is called the apostle and high priest. And we'll look at those a little bit later tonight. So he's greater in his office than Moses. Secondly, he's greater in his work than Moses was. He is the builder of the house. And thirdly, in his person, who he, is, who he was as a person, he is the son. So he's greater than Moses in those three ways, and we'll look at them. Now, if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 3, you see the word therefore. Verse verse 1 starts off with the word therefore. That points back to everything he said up to this point, the whole first two chapters. So the writer's saying, now listen, in view of what I've said up to this point, recalling what I've told you about Jesus being greater than the prophets, Jesus being greater than the angels, now he's saying, Let's consider him, let's consider Jesus in relation to Moses. And he goes on and he says, Therefore, holy brothers, holy brothers. Now, remember, he's talking to a mixed group, isn't he? There are people there who are are what we would call professing believers, and there there are those in that group who are possessing believers. I'm drawing a distinction between people who profess to be actually Christians when in fact they're not. They have an intellectual assent to the gospel. They'll agree and nod, but when it comes right down to it, they haven't really made the decision to commit their life to Jesus Christ. They're part of the crowd. And then there are those who are the possessing believers. These are the ones who have taken hold of Jesus and Jesus has taken hold of them. They are in possession of Christ. Christ is indeed in possession of them. Now he doesn't know who's who in that audience, does he? So he's going to be gracious. He's going to call them all what? Holy, holy brothers. Now from a Jewish perspective, they are his brothers, aren't they? And they are holy to the Lord. So it's totally legitimate, but I think it's, it's important that we understand. I mean, there were even, even the believing Jews in that crowd, remember... They had one eye on Jesus and they had the other eye on Judaism. It was always a temptation to go back to Judaism, to that which was familiar to them, the security of the law, the security of the Old Testament, the security of the rituals and so forth, especially uh, as Christians when they would be rejected by their Jewish brothers and sisters and as well uh, suffer persecution from Rome. So, Judaism, he says... I know, let me just go on here. It says, holy brothers who share in the what calling? Heavenly calling. This is very important distinction he's making. We dare not slide over it. He speaks of a heavenly calling. Judaism was an earthly calling. 
He's reminding them, you've been called to a heavenly calling. Judaism was an earthly calling. It had an earthly inheritance. If you read the whole Old Testament, it, all, it talks about blessings here, blessings here, blessings here. Obey the law, get blessed. It talks about this earthly life, this earthly existence, this earthly inheritance. Christianity, on the other hand, is a spiritual and heavenly calling with a spiritual and heavenly inheritance. There's a difference between the two and how they are lived out. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me earthward. Is that what he says? No, what's the word? Heavenward. See, Paul understands his heavenly calling. That's why the things of this earth, that song we sang, things of this earth grow strangely dim. We're pilgrims, are we not? Aren't we passing through? Our home is not here. Paul goes on in that same passage, and he says, our citizenship is in heaven. So again, you see this this heavenly calling, and this is what the writer to the Hebrews is impressing again upon these Jewish hearers. You are citizens of the heavenlies, he's saying, so why don't you let go of these earthly things? What are the earthly things? The things of Judaism. All the symbolisms, all the rituals. Let go of these things. They're still holding on to them, and they're tripping them up, keeping them from enjoying the heavenly things. He says, why do you want to hang on to the earthly rituals, the earthly symbols, when you have the heavenly reality? And the heavenly reality is Jesus. You have him. You are one with Christ. Why do you want to hold on to all those things that are just shadows and just point to him when you have Jesus. Now, if we are truly Christians, we have to be reminded, too, that we, we don't need religious rituals because we have a spiritual reality, don't we? You know, there are only two, if I can say this, two rituals, if you will, two, two symbolisms that we have in the church that are biblical, that are legitimate. Do you know what they are? Easter and Christmas. Very good. No, what are they? Baptism and communion. We have great symbolism in baptism, don't we? We go down under the water, it's a symbolism of what? Death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Your unity with Christ. That with Christ you died with Him, you were buried with Him, and raised with Him to new life. Powerful testimony. Communion is the other uh, instituted uh, gift, if you will, that Jesus left for us, and that is to remind us of him, isn't it? That's all we have. That's all we need. But we have managed over the, over the centuries as, as Christians, as church people, to add all sorts of rituals, haven't we? All, such, all sorts of external uh, rites and so forth that have really kept many, many people in bondage. In John's Gospel, in chapter 4, you remember he was interviewing the woman at the well? And he said to her, anyone who wants to worship God, now that he's come, anyone who wants to worship God must worship him with what? 
in spirit and in truth, not in rituals and ceremonies. And that was, that was the whole thing between the Jews in Jerusalem and up in Samaria where he was, the Samaritans. They were all tied up in all their rituals and all their ceremonies. And he says, boy, now, now that I've come, if you're going to worship God, you must worship him in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Our worship takes on a whole different tenor, doesn't it? As Christians now. Now, all of us at times, I think, are, are tempted to think that our religious activity, our, our, our works, if you will, and the trappings of, of re- religion, they're all important. You know, we get confused with, with some of the stuff that we do, like you know, the tithing and, and praying and, and Bible reading and Bible study and, and fasting and other spiritual disciplines, and they become almost ritualistic. And we get caught up in the ritual of the thing, and it becomes a legalistic burden, doesn't it? And we, but, but even in the face of it being a legalistic burden, we still feel somehow we're being more spiritual. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm talking about? We think, boy, I, this, is, this is great. But we lose sight of the reality of Jesus because we've got our eyes on the religious activity, the religious rituals. And, and most all of us know better. But we, we often feel most comfortable, most religious in that traditional, familiar surrounding or worship setting and when we perform our religious acts and good deeds that we think are particularly pleasing to God. Oh, God will be happy with me if I do this. God's happy with you now. Not because of what you do or don't do. God is happy with you because of what Jesus already did. At least that's what, that's what I, I understand that the Bible teaches. The righteousness of God has been given to me as a free gift. Not based on anything I've done. And I don't keep it based on anything I can, can do. But we still get into this religious activity, don't we? Ooh, I feel spiritual now. And we have to be careful because a lot of times we think that the latest crazes that come down make us more spiritual too. You know, the, the Christian church is always seeing things happening. I mean, as long as I've been a Christian, as long as I've been a pastor, I've seen lots of things cycle through the church. And you read church history, you see these things cycle through the church generation after generation. And people, people latch on to them because they think, oh, now I'm really spiritual. And I think that you have to understand what it means to be in spirit and in the truth. You've got to know what the Word says and what it means to walk after the Spirit. It's easy to get in the flesh, isn't it? See, we want to, we want to live positive, Christ-controlled, Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered lives, do we not? Not ritualistic lives. We want to live these lives by faith. We want to know the freedom that Christ has come to set us free for. And But for Christians, if you will, to hold on to earthly kinds of rituals and practices and trappings if they are, as if they are all important is not only unnecessary and pointless, but it's also spiritually harmful. Spiritually harmful. It stunts your growth as a Christian. 
These things keep us from experiencing the fullness of our relationship with the Lord. You focus on the externals, you focus on the ritual, that becomes a centerpiece of your life and your religion, if you will. You lose sight of the one whom gives you life. And it basically stunts your growth. These things are barriers, not means to blessings. It's fascinating to me, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, just write that reference down. 2 Kings 18, 4, King Hezekiah is recorded that he's making great reforms in Israel. And uh, they had gotten extremely religious, so religious that they'd gotten idolatrous. And he's bringing the nation back to a true worship of God. And uh, so he's tearing down all the, what's called the high places. These were places of pagan worship. One of the things he makes a point to destroy, it's interesting. Way back in the book of Numbers, when Israel is out in the wilderness wandering and they're being rebellious before the Lord, and do you remember the, the setting when God sends in the poisonous serpents and they start biting people and people start dying horrible deaths? And then in John chapter 3, when Jesus refers to that event, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, that, that uh, God told Moses, because Moses went and interceded for the people. He said, God, the people are sorry, forgive them. And God said, okay, make a bronze replica of these serpents, put it on a standard, hold it up, tell the people if they'll look at it, if they've been bitten by the snake, they won't die. That was God's remedy for snake bite. Well, they've kept that thing for generations and generations and generations. Now, what do you suppose they did to it? They started worshiping it. They started offering sacrifices to this symbol that God told them to make way back then. They've kept it, this relic. They've held on to it. So they've been offering sacrifices to it. And what what does Hezekiah do? He says, they're getting rid of it. And he destroys it. See, I think there's something there that we need to look around our life and say, what are the religious things I'm holding on to I need to destroy that are stunting my growth, that are keeping me immature so that I am not realizing the kind of rich relationship with Jesus Christ that he means for me to realize. Hard to believe you can get all that out of the first verse, huh? First half of the first verse. (laughs) What rules, what rituals, what religious practices have we embraced? Probably not even aware of it, not even thinking about it. I mean, I have to look into my life and I have to say, what, what religious practices have I embraced, not even paying attention, not even being aware that have kept me stunted in my growth, so that I don't know and and enjoy the power and the grace of the living Jesus Christ. In other words, sometimes we can be so focused on religion, we lose sight of the relationship. We're so interested in being right that we lose sight of the dynamic of being one with Christ. So, So concerned with being safe that we don't risk and walk by faith. And we could go on and on and on to describe the difference in those dynamics. Since we as believers share in the righteous nature of Jesus Christ, we share in the divine nature. Do you know that? We share in the, that's what the scriptures tell us. 
And since we share in that righteous nature of Christ and we share in his heavenly calling, then we ought to concentrate on the heavenly things, should we not? We ought to concentrate on the heavenly things, not the earthly things. Let me, let me read to you real quickly from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes here much the same thing. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Is that not a beautiful picture? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, he says to them, he says, Holy brothers who share in this heavenly calling, now notice the next phrase, the next, the next uh, um, segment of the sentence. Fix your thoughts on who? Fix your thoughts on... What do, you, what do you think he means by fix your thoughts? I mean, make him the focus. Now, as you say, just fix your thoughts on Friday night on Jesus. Fix your thoughts once in a while on Jesus. What do you think he means by that? He means that you focus your whole life and thoughts on Jesus. Now, I know someone can say, well, that's awfully impractical because you've got to think about other things, too. First things first, other things not at all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Same principle. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And it's not just the unsaved who need that, but it's believers also, right? No matter how mature we think we are. I mean, we can skate, can't we? You've been Christian for years. You, you got a lot of knowledge. You know what the Bible says. You're, you know, you're pretty well positioned. It's tempting to skate in your Christian faith. And so that you're kind of looking around at other things. Can you be easily distracted? If you're not keeping your gaze, your thoughts constantly focused on Jesus? Surely. We should keep our, our thoughts fixed on Him in everything. Everything. Constantly acknowledging Him in everything of, that our life has to deal with. Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece. Because all of us are far from discovering all He is. Isn't that true? Does he, do you think He means for us to know, know Him more and more and more and discover all He is? And just keep mining the depths of His wonderful person? Absolutely. Don't you think he wants to continue to unfold to us the majesty of who he is? Surely. So doesn't it make sense to keep our, fo our thoughts focused on him? If that's to happen for us? Sure. Absolutely. So G the Holy Spirit tells us, he says, put your mind on Jesus, let it remain there, that you may understand who he is, and you might understand what he wants, what his will is. Don't just look for two minutes and then spend 40 minutes over here. Just a quick glance and then you're off distracted doing some other things. Keep focused on Jesus. Don't look around. 
He's saying at all the religious stuff, don't look around at all the rituals. Don't make those the important issues of your life. All the problems, all the persecutions, these things are inevitable. These things are going to come. Keep your gaze, keep your thoughts focused where? On Jesus. Yeah, but you don't understand all these problems. These things are distracting, I know. But lift your head and keep your focus. Don't get distracted. He is sufficient for everything. He is our Savior in the fullest sense of that word. He is sufficient. Those aren't just empty words. That is the truth. That is the gospel. He is sufficient. And if he is sufficient, then I should keep my eyes on him. That I might realize his sufficiency for my life. If I, if I don't keep my focus on him, I'll never know his sufficiency for my life. And I'll be distracted by all sorts of other things. I'll be running off to this resource. I'll be running off to that resource. I'll be knocking on this door. I'll be knocking on that door. I'll be asking for help over here. When all the time I should have been keeping my focus where? He's sufficient for everything. He is our supreme reality. And we have him in our life. This is what the Bible says. So we keep our attention on him. I'm convinced the reason so many Christians are are so weak and so worried and so harried is that they do not stay focused on Jesus. They do not stay focused on Jesus. In all the years I've been pastoring, as I talk with people who who are worried, who are fretful, who are fearful, who are anxious, whose lives just are are falling apart. Temptation overwhelms them time and time again. My constant comment to them is, what place is Jesus? Don't tell me, I I believe in Jesus. I, I love the Lord. But they live in constant fear. Where's their focus, do you think? It's not on Jesus. These people were in terrible fear. They were under heavy persecution. They were experiencing rejection at every quarter. Their faith had not matured. Why? Because they had one eye on Jesus, one eye on the rituals, one eye on Jesus, one eye still on Judaism. Their faith did not mature. So when the storms came, they started running and crashing. They would trust in the prophets. They looked to the angels still. They're still looking at Moses. And the writer to the Hebrews says, no, fix your gaze, your understanding, everything on Jesus. When life gets tough and the problems seem to have no solution, everything goes bad. When disappointment and depression seem almost normal. And temptations are too impossible to resist, or at least they seem that way. Beloved, put your focus on Jesus and keep it there intently. Keep it there intently until he begins to unfold before your very eyes in all of his glorious power and grace. And he will be present to you. 
You will know his grace in your life. He'll make a way in the desert. But we're not keeping our gaze, our thoughts fixed on Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29? He told his disciples, he says, he says learn about me. Didn't he? Careful, it's a trick. <laughs> Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, what does he say? Who knows that passage? What does he say, Larry? Okay, back up. What? No, you missed it. You skipped something. No. Learn from me. Learn from me. How can I possibly learn from him if I don't keep my focus on him? How many parents do we have? You ever try to teach your kids something and they keep looking away? They're off, they're off in la-la land, right? You say, will you look at me while I'm talking to you? <laughs> Pay attention to what I'm saying. How are you going to learn? <laughs> are, you, are you looking over there at somebody? He's paying attention. He's in the back row, but he's paying attention. Jesus says, learn from me. You've got to be with him to learn from him. Does that make sense? Keep your thoughts constantly fixed on Jesus. Ask yourself these, these questions. Do I really enjoy my Christian life? Do I really enjoy my Christian life? Do I get up in the morning and say, Lord, I just can't wait to see what you're going to do today? Now let me back up again. Do I really enjoy my Christian life? See, because if you really enjoy your Christian life, that's going to be a telltale sign. You'll get up in the morning and say, Whoo, I don't know what you're going to do today. I can hardly wait to see. See, because now your Christianity is coming alive. Why? Because your focus is on Him. He is so real to you. You go through the day saying, Whoo, Lord, Lord, I give you praise. I thank you. Woo, Lord, your fellowship and your presence are thrilling. Go through the day and do that? Do we sing and make melody to the Lord in our heart all day? We go, oh, Lord, it's so great. you're so sweet, so wonderful. I mean, you know, things could come crashing in around you, but you just, you go, oh, Lord, you're so beautiful. You're so... People say, what's the matter with you? Oh, I'm deliriously in love. <laughs> right, Richard? I'm not even done with verse 1 yet. <laughs> Do you enjoy Jesus Christ? Do you sometimes want to stand up and shout? You can hardly stand it. You enjoy Him so much, you love Him so much, you want to just shout it out. In the middle of the movie theater, you stand up and say, Lord, I love Jesus! <laughs> middle of the doctor's office waiting room, you say, I love Jesus! middle of your psychology classroom and school, you stand up and say, I love Jesus. You knew I had to sneak that in, didn't you? 
You know, I, I wonder how many Christians really enjoy him. I wonder how many Christians really enjoy him. So many Christians seem to be miserable and unhappy, not knowing anything about his joy. They just walk around with a long face, you know. Life is hard. Life is tough. Things just aren't working. <sighs> fix, your, fix your thoughts on him. On him. Let him save you. Let him lift you up. Let him make all the difference in your life. Start enjoying Jesus. Beloved, if you want to enjoy Jesus, you've got to stay with him until you learn to enjoy him. You've got to stay with him. He kind of grows on you. Do you know that? You stay with him and all of a sudden you go, Ooh, I like him. Ooh, he's cool. He grows on you. And pretty soon you're in love with him. Pretty soon you're walking down the street going, I love Jesus. Big old macho guys. I love Jesus. You got to stay with him. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. He, uh, he just recorded all the, the hall of fame, if you will, of faith. And then he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Hmm. Might that refer to something we've been talking about? Let us throw all those things off that hinder us. I mean, you've got all these people of faith. So let us throw off all the things that hinder us and, and, that, and sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us, oh, here he comes again. Fix our eyes on who? Jesus. You see, let us run the race. When I was in high school, I ran track. And uh, my track coach... I'll never forget the first track meet we were in. He, I was a sprinter, and he neglected to tell me, you don't look to the right, you don't look to the left. You look straight ahead, you keep your eyes on the tape. So I got in my first race. I got down on the blocks, and we the gun went off, and I blew out of the blocks, and I'm running down there. I'm, And these guys are right next to me going... And I look to the right, and I look to the left. And what do you think happened? They passed me right by. <laughs> At the end of the race, my coach came screaming. He says, what did you look away for? I said, well, I heard these guys on the side. And they just, it's a natural thing to look. He told me, you never look. You never look. You never take your eyes off the tape. I said, you never told me that. Have you ever heard that? Well, you didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's why my coach had a flat forehead. <laughs> you got to run the race. You got to keep your eyes on the tape, on the finish line. That's Jesus. If you're going to run the race, keep your eyes on Jesus. If you're not in the race, if you're not going to run the race, 
looking at Jesus, not anything else, not anyone else. Jesus is sufficient. Say that with me. Jesus is sufficient. And for anyone who will keep their focus on Him, they will know His sufficiency. They will know it in their life. And they will undergo that marvelous transformation that the Bible speaks of. Now, when we do fix our attention on Jesus, what do we see? Well, we see these three things about him that we outlined a few moments ago. First of all, we see him as apostle and high priest. The fact that he is both of these, he's both apostle and high priest. What was Moses? Moses was just an apostle. But Jesus is both of them. And that's the first way that he's superior to Moses. Now an apostle means a sent one. We all know that. One who's sent. Um, it's a title for that was used for official ambassadors. The Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, would send envoys and to carry out their, uh, their decrees, carry out the commands, enforce their authority. Uh, and these envoys had the authority, they had the power of the Sanhedrin behind them, and they were called ambassadors, or they were called apostles. There's an interesting story told of the king of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, when he took it upon himself to attack Egypt. He wanted to attach Egypt to his territory. However, the Roman government frowned on this, and they sent a messenger, they sent a, an envoy, uh, an ambassador, a sent one, to Antiochus. His name was Popilius. Popilius caught up with the Antiochus on the border of Egypt, just as he was getting ready to attack Egypt. Popilius told him to stop. He said the Roman government was not happy and insisted that uh, Antiochus stop his attack on Egypt. Now, Popilius had no army with him. He didn't even have a military guard with him. He was all by himself, but he carried the authority of the Roman government with him. So when, when Popilius told Antiochus to stop his attack, Antiochus said, I will consider it. Well, with that, Popilius then took his staff, and he were, they were talking, apparently, and uh, Papilius took his staff, and he drew a circle in the ground around the place where Antiochus was standing. And he said to him, You consider it, and come to your decision before you leave that circle. Now, what gave him the authority to say that? He had the power and the might of Rome behind him. He was a Roman sent one, apostle, ambassador, if you will, envoy. After a few seconds, what do you think that Antiochus said? Very well, I'll go home. He understood the power that was behind this man, behind those words that were being proclaimed to him. They had an impact on Antiochus' life. He turned around and did not then attack Egypt. Moses, in a very similar way, was a sent one or an apostle from God 
to Israel. He brought to Israel God's law. He brought to Israel God's covenant, God's agreement. He brought to Israel, or he was, I should say, he was sent to Israel from God. So in a very real sense, Moses also was an apostle. But Jesus was a better apostle because he brought a better covenant. And not only that, uh, Jesus was himself a sacrifice that made his covenant better than the covenant that that, uh, Moses brought. And these Jews would have been instructed in the new covenant and they understand exactly what he's talking about. So Jesus would be the supreme sent one or the supreme apostle from God. Nobody in the New Testament, none of the New Testament writers refers to Jesus as an apostle except the writer to the Hebrews. And he is the supreme sent one, if you will, from God, Jesus. Now, he's also the supreme high priest. And we'll deal with this high priesthood when we get into chapters 4 and 5. But suffice it to say that Jesus is the supreme mediator between God and man. That was the role of the high priest, to mediate between God and man. That was Aaron's role, Moses' brother. Jesus is the one who brings God to man and man to God. Jesus is the supreme high priest. Secondly, we see that Jesus, when we look and we fix our gaze on him, we understand that he is superior to Moses in his work, as we said earlier on. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, God said of Moses, quote, He is faithful in all my house. And this is God speaking to Moses. The context is when his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, do you remember when they were, they were going to overthrow Moses? They were crabbing and complaining, why does Moses get all this special treatment and so forth? And God rebukes Aaron and Miriam. And he says to them that Moses is faithful in all my house. He says, with him I speak face to face. And that's a powerful statement. No place else is that ever said about any other person that God speaks to them face to face. God is saying that Moses Moses was faithful in God's household. Moses was faithful in carrying out God's plan and God's purpose. Moses was faithful in his stewardship over Israel, the house of Israel. And just as Moses was faithful, so was Jesus, but only much more so. In John chapter 7, verse 18, listen to Jesus' words. This is a paraphrase. You can tell that I am a true apostle because I do not speak, seek my own glory. I seek only the glory of the one who sent me. Jesus says, I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm seeking the glory of the one who sent me. Again, this idea, he's saying, I'm, I'm a sent one. And, a, and, and one who is sent really does only seek the glory of the one who sends him. So Jesus is telling us that he is a true apostle. And indeed, from his earliest childhood, remember, he was always about his father's business. In that young, tender age, when they found him in the temple, they said, what are you doing here? Didn't you know that I should be about my father's business? I mean, that was his main concern, wasn't it? 
Jesus always did his Father's will, did he not? Always. He was faithful. He was faithful. Listen to John, what Jesus says, John chapter 8, verse 29. Write that verse down. John 8, 29. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Now here's the passage. For I always do what pleases him. Does that speak of faithfulness? I always do what pleases him. The one who sent me. Again, we see this speaking of his uh, being sent in his work. In chapter 17, the same idea, verses 4 and 5. We won't read that, but you can look those verses up on your own. Jesus was faithful to the heavenly household. That's the church. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2, let me read to you. Verses 18 through 22. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So we have access through Jesus to the Father by the Spirit. Consequently, we are no longer foreigners and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now what's he talking about in Ephesians, do you think? He's talking about the church, isn't he? Fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So we see this picture of the church as a building, and we are all part of that building. We are added to it, but Jesus is the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is the faithful part. Without that cornerstone, you do not have a building that is going to stand. Same idea in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let me read this to you. He says to us, As you come to him, the living stone, meaning Jesus, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's always through Jesus Christ. It's through His faithfulness as He is the head of the church that we see the church being built up and uh, in which we offer spiritual sacrifices. So Moses was faithful uh, But Jesus, again, was more faithful. Moses was part of the house. Jesus made the house. Jesus built the house. That's the great difference. Jesus created Israel. Jesus created Israel. John chapter 1, verse 3. Remember what John says. Through him all things were made. Through whom? Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So if Israel was made, if Israel was brought into existence, who was it brought into existence through? Jesus, that's right. So if Moses, if Moses was a part of the house, Jesus was the maker of the house of Israel, then isn't Jesus greater than Moses? You see? Moses was only a member of the household which Jesus built. Jesus created Israel, and he created the church. So he is the one who has created all 
true believers, whether Jew or Gentile, whether from the old uh, covenant or the new. So that makes Jesus what? God, doesn't it? Since God created all things? Okay, so if Jesus, if all things were created through him, then he must then be God. Obviously, he's greater than Moses in his work. God alone creates the house, and he continues building it as new believers are added daily. And we are as we are human witnesses, if you will, as human witnesses, we are the instruments he uses. He's the builder, and as the builder, he is greater than any of his tools. Moses, again, was one of the tools that God used, and hence Christ is greater. To hold on, therefore, to the forms of Judaism as these people were tempted to do, or to hold on to its greatest leader, is to hold on to only the symbolism of the greater reality, which is Christ. Why hold on to the shadows? Why hold on to the symbols when you can know the ultimate reality, Jesus? Then we come to the third thing that we see when we fix our thoughts on Jesus. Moses was faithful in his person as a servant, while Jesus was faithful as a son. There's a great difference between a servant and a great difference between a son. Great difference. Moses was a servant, the highest ranking servant, but nonetheless, he was a servant. And he was a servant in someone else's household, God's household. But Jesus is a son over God's house. You see the difference? So they would, know, they would acknowledge it. Yeah, Moses, Moses is a servant. He's God's servant on earth. He was a member of the house. But Jesus is the son, and it's his house. He created it. Vast difference between being a servant and a son. If the son, therefore, is greater than the servant, Jesus must be greater than Moses. Okay? So in his office, in his work, And in his person, in all three of those categories, Jesus is greater than Moses. So then he says, verse 6, the last part of verse 6. He says, and we are his house. Now he's speaking to these Jews now. He set the stage for him. He showed them how Jesus is greater than the most revered Jew in all of history. He says, and we are his house. How can we know that we are really God's house? How can we know? What does he say? Read it with me. If we hold on to our what? Courage and the hope of which we what? Boast. Do we have a hope that we boast of? We, we say, oh man, I've got hope. I've got hope. I have a greatest confidence and hope anybody could ever want. Do we hold on to it? We hold on to our courage? When things come crashing in on us? When things threaten our life? Are we holding on? Some of you say, well, I'm just barely holding on by my fingernails. You know, you get this picture of just some, someone barely holding on, hanging in there. 
The Christian life is not hanging in there. The Christian life is holding on to what? Courage and the hope of which we boast. What can man do to me? God is for me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Whom shall I fear? What shall I fear? Do you see what I'm suggesting? I'm suggesting that if we're not maturing, and we're not maturing because we are just being religious, then we are going to be subject to all manner of distractions, fears, afflictions, things that attack our life, and they are going to blow us away. Jesus. It all goes back to fixing our thoughts on Jesus. He is our life. He is our life. And you know, you're only going to know that. In, 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 in the reality of your life, you're only going to know it if you keep your thoughts fixed on Jesus. It's not just intellectually saying, oh, I know that, yeah, okay. Then you go live your life and it's still a mess. You're still frustrated. You have no hope, really. Are you with me? So the things that these people here, way back in this second century, were experiencing, we experience the same kinds of things. Except we just aren't trusting in prophets and and angels and Moses. We trust in our other religious rituals and symbols and so forth. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Test yourself. How do I test myself? You know what I think? You test yourself by saying, where's your courage? Where's your hope? Put yourself in those positions where you got to step out by faith. Let's see if you got it. Let's see if you got the stuff. I'm afraid to get on an airplane. Get on the airplane. I'm afraid of... Go confront it. Let's see if you got the stuff. And you don't do it in your flesh. You do it because why? Jesus is your life. Jesus is your hope. He's your strength. He gives you the courage. You just hold on to it. You hold on to it by keeping your thoughts fixed on Jesus. Beloved, when we know that we are in Christ and we fix our thoughts on Jesus, we will know that He is sufficient. We will know that He is all we need. He is all we need. We'll know that we are complete in Him. Amen. Pray with me. Lord God, help us to embrace the reality of this passage. Help us, God, each and every one of us, for all of us struggle with our own religiosity. We 
are so distracted by things that are temporary, that keep our our gaze from being fixed, our thoughts from being fixed on Jesus. Lord, as we spend these next seconds, we just ask you to begin that work of revealing to us what those things are, that we might put them off. And Lord, show us the sin in our life that has so easily entangled us and kept us from running the race. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's the greatest. That he is our sufficiency. Jesus, we thank you that you are our sufficiency. You are all we need. You provide us with everything. You said to us that if we would would remain in you and your words remain in us, then we could ask for anything and it would be given. Lord, I pray that we would begin to, in ways that we never have, begin to know you and love you and realize your grace and your power in our lives. We love you tonight. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, take these words and plant them deeply into our being that they might rise up and bear much fruit in the next days and weeks and months. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song before we dismiss.